Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews 10, the passage we're going to read today, is one of my favorite passages in the book of Hebrews so far, and we're going to study verses 19 to 25. I'm going to read for us uh, beginning in that verse now. Hear now God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would do this in our midst right now. I pray that even as we sit here today, even as we gather, you would encourage us all the more as that great day of your appearing draws near to us. Would you do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there have been some passages, I think, so far in Hebrews that have been extremely dense. You just kind of beat your head against the thing and pray that it will break down in such a way that it can be communicated to such a diverse group of people. And then there are passages like ours today in Hebrews chapter 10 that are like peeling an orange. You open the thing up and the slices just fall out in a perfect arrangement. I mean, you can't ask for more than you have in this passage. We, in the first three verses, hear this theological summary of where we've been, verses 19 to 21. And then in verses 22 to 25, you have a threefold application that's all broken down very nicely for us because every point of the application starts with let us. So you have a a summary of where we've been and you have an application of where we're going. I just want to briefly survey the entire thing and then we're going to spend all of our time on that third point of application this morning. So let's start with the theological summary. In verses 19 to 21, the writer to the Hebrews is attempting to take everything we've heard from chapter 4 to chapter 10 and to cram all of it together in three verses. He's going to give us this loaded, this densely packed three-verse summary of all the theology he's talked about since chapter 4. He says in these three verses, Jesus has offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to open up this new and living way to God. Because he's done that, Jesus now serves as the high priest over God's house in God's presence. The summary is this. Because Jesus has made this perfect offering, because he has put himself forward to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, if anybody would confess and say, I am indeed a sinner, and trust that Jesus alone takes the weight of our sin, we can be completely forgiven perfectly cleansed, and ushered into the very presence of God. We stand there now with him in his presence where Jesus serves as our high priest and we will worship God forever. 
That's seven chapters of theology that's crammed together in three verses. And the writer to the Hebrews kind of hands that to each one of us as a member of the body of Christ, this, this canister under high pressure, and he says, take this and live this. And when we get a hold of this thing as a believer, it's going to explode. It's going to expand in our life in at least three ways. And he says, these are three ways you'll feel the immediate impact of this kind of theology on your life. Here's the three of them, and they each start with a let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up. Number one, let us draw near. He says this in verse 22, our hearts have been sprinkled, our bodies have been washed, our consciences are cleaned. Therefore, verse 22, draw near in full assurance of faith. I love that phrase in this passage, full assurance of faith. The normal Christian life is full assurance of the faith that God has given us, and anything less is not from God. Fear, timidity, groveling, penance, self-loathing. These things are things that we experience every single day. These are things that all of us can attest to every single day of our Christian life, but these things are not fruits of the Spirit. They are not from God. The fruit of the Spirit that he gives us in the gospel is a full assurance of our faith. When I have that full assurance, when I sense that full assurance, when I don't have it and I long for that full assurance, that is the very gift of God in the gospel. That is the normal Christian experience. Number two, let us hold fast. We draw near, we hold fast. Verse 23, we hold fast to this confession, this assurance of faith, because he who promised is faithful. The reason we're able to hold fast to this thing and, and have confidence in this faith is because of God. We're not trusting in the caliber of our faith. We're trusting in the character of God. We have faith in the faithfulness of God. You grab a hold of this kind of gospel. You hold it white knuckled in our life for all that we experience. And we're simply saying, I trust that God is going to be true to his promises. I trust that when I hold on to this thing, I realize that it is really God and the gospel who is holding me. I have full confidence in this. I have full assurance to draw near to God because of these things. And so finally, and this is where we're going to dwell, this third point of application, he says, draw near, hold fast. Finally, let us stir each other up. Let us stir up. Now, until we got to that point of application, you could have, and I could have gotten a certain impression of this passage. I mean, there are things in this passage that lend themselves for us to think, this is pretty self-contained. This is something that I can experience in the gospel between God and I alone. This is chiefly about what God is doing on my behalf for his glory, and this can happen in a room between us. I mean, if Jesus has opened up a new and living way to God, if I now, because of this, have full access to God, full assurance of my faith, full confidence in the priest who serves in God's house, what else could I possibly need? What could I need if God has done this on our behalf? 
Give me a Bible and a prayer closet. I mean, set me as a Christian on an island in the middle of a sea of this godless culture and let the winds of adversity and the waves of the adversary blow and crash against me and let me say with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. Me and God, that's all I need. And the writer to the Hebrews says, that's not at all what I'm talking about here. If you're thinking that, if you're perceiving that, you've missed all the plurals in this passage that prepare us as Christians for a completely different vision of what this life can be. Look again at our passage, and if you're the kind of person that circles and underlines, take a moment to circle every plural in this passage. Therefore, brothers, you could translate that brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the new and living way that he opened for us. And since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering and let us consider how to stir up one another. The entire passage is nothing but plurals. It's all us's and ours. It's all brothers and one another's. In other words, It is nothing but friendship and community and togetherness that we experience in the gospel as the body of Christ. This is not, this is the letter to the Hebrews. It's not the letter to a Hebrew. This is written to a church. It's written to a community of people to experience this together. I cannot even begin to stress the enormity of two paths that lie before every Christian who is born again in an American culture of extreme self-made individualism. I can't even begin to stress how far these paths are from our vision of individualism in America as a believer and the biblical view of what the Christian life should be. Apparently, this was true in the writer to the Hebrews day because he talks about it in verses 24 and 25. He says, you have two groups of people within the church. You have a group of people who have come together, they're meeting together to stir one another up. And then you have this other group of people who have made it a habit, they've made it a practice, they've made it a custom to neglect meeting with one another. Now, you hear about those two different groups of people, the group that meets and the group that doesn't, and you could miss that and begin to perceive that he's saying something that he is emphatically not saying. You could read a passage like this, and you could begin to kind of think to yourself, he's basically saying, there are just some people who are people people. They're church people. They like to be at church events. They like to attend what the church is doing. They're kind of wired for big groups. You put them alone with their Bibles and they get a little ADD that just doesn't work for them. They're big group people and they're always going to resonate with what the church is doing together. And then there are other people who are just more self-sufficient. They have a deeper walk, they have deeper quiet times, they've never really resonated with churches when they do small group ministries, that's not their thing, and besides, there are so many demands on their time, they couldn't possibly commit to something like that anyway. There are just naturally two different groups of people and two different personalities. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, no, no, 
a thousand times no. Whatever this looks like, however this plays itself out in a culture, there are two groups within the church. There are those who meet together, and there are those who neglect to meet together. There are those who stir each other up, and there are those who don't. And when he says this to the church he's writing to, the text immediately turns to us, and it asks every single one of us, who are you and what are you doing? Regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you're a big group kind of person or a small group kind of person, you're weak, you're strong, you're seasoned in the faith, you're young in the faith, you have a demanding job or you work for the government, whether you're homeschooled or public schooled, tall, short, black and white, wherever you come from, are you a stirrer or are you a neglector? Are you meeting together and stirring up or are you neglecting to do the thing that God has called you to do? Do you take other people's Christian lives as seriously as you take your own Christian life? Or does your life begin to betray the great lie from the evil one that at the end of the day Christianity is kind of an every man for itself kind of deal? Are you a stirrer or are you a neglector? Now, I got to say that as we venture in to talk about this, this is an extremely personal and touchy subject for every single person in this room. You begin to talk about getting in each other's business and stirring each other up, and we're going to perceive that differently, and it's going to be a very different and touchy subject for all of us. There are those in this church who... Right now, they want to be stirred, and no one is there to stir them. There are other people in this church, they want to be involved in stirring, but nobody's here to be stirred up. There are people in this church, seated here right now, who want deeper, fuller, better relationships with other people, and there are people in this church right now who wish people would just leave them the heck alone. They don't want that. They don't want people in their business. There are going to be people who will leave this church over the course of this next year because nobody here is serious about stirring each other up. And there are people who will leave this church over the course of this next year because people are doing way too much stirring in each other's lives and they don't want that. I wish this was a one-size-fit-all kind of deal. I wish we could say, if you just did X, Y, and Z, you would be in the stirrer camp and not in the neglector camp. But all of us are so different, come from such different backgrounds. We have such different expectations. We can't even begin to say that. What we can say as a church is, here are the avenues that we have to begin doing this with one another. Sunday morning worship, our small group ministry, volunteering to help do discipleship with the people that are here participating in ministries outside of the four walls of this church, taking seriously the vision to be disciple, making disciples in a church planting church. None of these ways are perfect. In fact, we could say so much about just how imperfect every single one of these avenues are, but they are a way to begin to get a handle on and to begin to obey and apply a passage like Hebrews chapter 10. 
In fact, this is so important for our church body that we take seriously this vision that God is calling us to, that we're going to dedicate the month of October to study scripture and to understand together what does it look like to be a disciple-making disciple in a church-planning church. But for now, in the last five minutes, I just want to say a word about the what, the how, and the why of stirring each other up. I'm going to find all of these things right here in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at them very briefly. The what, how, and why of stirring. What are we supposed to do? We say, we hear that we are to be stirring each other up. What does that look like? Well, we hear in verse 24, let us consider how we may stir one another up to love and good works. The what we're doing in each other's lives, the goal we have for each other is very simple. It's found here. Love and good works. Affections and actions. When we participate in the life of another person, that's what we hope to see God do in their life. Now think about this from both sides of stirring. Because... Everybody is a stirrer and everybody is being stirred, right? You're sitting on both sides of the table when it comes to this kind of application. And so think first what it means to be a person who's being stirred up. If every single person in this church is hearing this charge, go out and be a stirrer and stir people up towards these things, that means that every single person in this room is going to be a target of this kind of ministry, right? People are going to begin to knock on our door and to call us and to text us and to meet with us in our life groups, and they're going to have an agenda for our lives, and this agenda is going to be love and good works. And here's the promise that's buried in the nuisance of having somebody else attend to my spiritual life. Wherever I stand today, wherever God has brought me thus far, he plans to bring me further. He, through the lives of fellow friends in this church, wants me, who has already been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, to love him more deeply and to do better kingdom work. God is going to do that in my life. That's the promise that is ahead of me in my Christian life because he's going to have other people interact with me. That's the promise for everybody here who's going to be a person who is being stirred. Now think about it from the side of the table as the one who is stirring. Not only are you promised these things and you're going to be a stirrer, but you are going to stir each other. God's going to entrust you, he is entrusting you with this incredible ministry. In some wonderful, stupefying, divinely empowering way, God is going to put you in the lives of other believers and he's going to change the fabric of their spiritual life because of your friendship with them. Think about the people in this room. Think about the people who are sitting around you. Thinking about the people that you're going to talk to awkwardly before and after the service over a cup of coffee. Think about the people that you're going to volunteer with down in the kids' ministry next Sunday. Think about the people who are in your life group. Think about the people who you're doing ministry off campus with. Think about the people that God has placed in your life because you're there because you're attending to this passage, because God's Holy Spirit fills you, these people will feel, love, desire, know, do, be more like Jesus because of your friendship with them. Can you even imagine 
that you have that kind of impact in the life of another person? Can you even imagine that this is the ministry that God now entrusts to you, every single one of you who's a believer in Christ? If that's the what that we're called to, we've got to ask the question, how? How? How can I even begin to do something like that? I have enough trouble attending to my own spiritual life, my own growth. How can God possibly use me, all my weakness, all my sin, all my limitations, to then engage with another person and to see them become more like Jesus? How, how could I do something like that? Well, the details, the, the strategy, the how is so sparse in our passage. I mean, we just don't get a lot of details for this thing. And I think that's actually a big clue that tells us we can typically make this more complicated than it is. There's not a lot of instructions here for how we're going to do this in the life of another person because it's probably a lot more simple than we think it is. The writer to the Hebrews simply says, we stir each other up by meeting together and encouraging each other. That's what he says. That's the grand plan for changing people's lives for all eternity. Just get together with them and encourage them. Face-to-face meeting with another believer is an essential ingredient to -to peer-to-peer discipleship. There's no way to replace that. And honestly, I wish there was. I wish there was a a simpler, maybe more convenient way that we could streamline discipleship. I wish there was a book I could give somebody that they could read. I wish there was a Sunday school they could digest. I wish there was a podcast they could listen to and it would save me a lot of meetings, a lot of sitting down with other people and a lot of mess. But the writer to the Hebrews says, there's absolutely no way to replace what God has designed meeting face-to-face with another person to see their spiritual life changed. I saw an incredible yet simple yet profound example of this in my life in just this past week. Last Sunday after church, I was sitting around the pool with my brother-in-law, Kenny, who leads worship. We're sitting together, we're just kind of shooting the breeze, and then Kenny asked me a very simple question. He said, David, I know you talk about evangelism. I know that you say that that's something that's very important to you. What's that going to look like in this next season of your life? How how are you going to to do that and apply that to your life? Wow. All of a sudden, a very simple, sweaty, poolside conversation. Let me know that there are another set of eyes on my spiritual life besides my own, right? There is another person who's attending to what is happening between me and God. Now, I could have snapped at Kenny like I wanted to from the book of Hebrews and said, Kenny, I don't need to put up with this, man. I am fully justified. I'm cleaned in God's sight. He has ushered me into the heavenly holy of holies. I stand in God's presence. Jesus mediates on my behalf. I don't need this. I don't need to put up with this. And Kenny could have responded, you know, I'm there too. God has ushered me into his presence. And one of the things that Jesus prays on our behalf is that I would be obedient to stir you up to love and good works. That's how Jesus is going to do this. We make it complicated. It's very simple. Get in the face of another believer and as gently as you can, encourage them towards love and good works. That's the miracle of peer-to-peer discipleship. Lastly, the why. We've seen the what, we've seen the how. Why do we do something like this? It comes to us at the tail end of verse 25 where he says, do this all the more as you see the 
day drawing near. That's day, capital D, that refers to the day in which Jesus is going to return. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the writer to the Hebrews starts mentioning that day more often in the back end of his letter. He's said it a few times now. He's talked about judgment day. He's talked about being eager for Jesus to appear. Now he's talking about that day. And I think he's doing that in part because people in the church he's writing to are about to start dying. They've been persecuted for their faith. They're about to be martyred for their faith. And that's a time and a place to begin to talk about the return of Jesus when you're about to face death. I think another reason he starts to bring this up in the back end of his letter and connect it to this task we have in each other's lives is because that day, that final day, capital D, has a great clarifying effect on this day, today, lowercase d. When we're reminded that Jesus is about to roll back the sky like a scroll any minute now and appear and to usher us into the new heavens and the new earth forever, it has this prioritizing effect on our lives, right? There are some things that we're doing in this life that just don't matter. And there are some things that Jesus is calling us to that really, really matter. And when we think about that day drawing near, we begin to realize there are things that don't matter that are clouding out the things that matter, and I want to do less of the former, and I want to do more of the latter, because this is an act of worship. Jesus has done this on my behalf. I respond in worship by drawing fellow believers into this kind of worship. Let's pray together. Let us participate in this, Jesus. We're going to do it now in fits and starts so that we're ready to do it forever and ever and ever when you come again. I pray that you would make us a church that gets inside each other's business, that begins to stir each other up towards love and good works, and that you will change us and shape us into the image of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.